Dan Brown uh, here today again with another uh, a lens a day conversations about information architecture. And today I get to talk to the inimitable Maxine Morris. Maxine, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. So uh, when we were uh, talking just before, uh, you were talking about sort of the range of things uh, that you do and um, the fact that you uh, sometimes take a broader view uh, of the kinds of design challenges uh, that, that we all uh, deal with. I wonder if you could talk to me a little bit about um, some of your starting points. Where is it when you are faced with a new design challenge? How do you start that process? How do you get the engine going? How do you get people on board uh, to kind of um, really try and understand the problem that you're trying to solve and push the design process forward? So there are two, there are two approaches, whether it is a new um, project or whether it's a mitigation project. Um, and my experience has been on the mitigation side. Um, I am called into a meeting. There is an issue with a solution in my experience, of course, the issue has been like for a project I can call up by memory. It was a problem with a e-commerce site and the issues that people were having in using that site and in completing a purchase. And a lot of times, even though my experience is more on the front end, I am also being asked to not just devise a solution, but kind of identify the people within an organization that would help um, internally to mitigate the issue or fix it. Um, and in my experience, the two places when it comes to like an e-commerce solution, of course, uh, platform rather, it would be the accounting division and the IT department. So it's firstly starting out the gate um, is choosing your team, who can best help to fix this issue. Um, and then once you, uh, that makes sense, right? Sort of once you sort of identify the who, um, uh, especially as you're kind of uh, wrapping your head around the problem, I love the idea of kind of bringing a lot of people, the right minds uh, and perspectives right. to, the, right. to the table. Um, do you ever find that, or maybe you can tell me about a time when maybe everyone had sort of a different conception of what the problem is? Uh, maybe because some of us, you know, some of them were coming at it from the accounting perspective and some were coming at the IT perspective mm -hmm. and you were trying to maybe take a more holistic perspective. Does that sound right? No, that sounds right. Um, as I have come to realize, <laughs> um, accounting becomes... The, the sticky wicket, if you will. Um, <laughs> they, there is always a pushback on the cost, um, explorations about working internally versus externally. And of course, I'm coming from the perspective as an internal staff. In my role, I was the um, design and production person. Um, and it was evaluating where monies would be best spent and also, if a solution tends to include accounting staff, 
the pushback is, well, isn't there an off-the-shelf solution that could be automated to do this as opposed to dedicating staff resources? Um, in design management, one of the evaluations that you always have to take into account is your human resources, your human assets. I hate to use it in those assets, but, um, and a lot of times there is a hesitancy to devote a, a person behind the scenes to something. So the default is always, is there for lack of a better word, app for that. Your, uh, I mean, I think as people who are uh, engaged in user experience design, we are dealing with sometimes very abstract uh, problems uh, and dealing with abstract problem spaces. And that even the solutions that we come up with at the very beginning of the process are abstract. Um, are there, do you have special techniques or approaches that you like to use to kind of help other folks who are involved in the process kind of mm -hmm. engage with those abstractions? So I'm really glad you asked about that because as someone doing this for a while, you, you learn from other people through readings, through experience and kind of devise your, you workshop it or you kind of MacGyver it. <laughs> That's what I call it. So a lot of times, you know, when you hear Unfortunately, with the design field right now, um, coming from the perspective of someone that was doing this for a long time, there seems to be this cookie cutter approach and you're missing that MacGyver method, um, which comes when you are like the person in-house that people are looking to, to just fix it, right? Um, and one of the, my go-to is I love to layer things, just like I mentioned that I liked about your lenses. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the concept of the five E's of service design. Um, that's another lens that I put at each phase. Like let's say you're redesigning what the experience is like for someone interacting with your artifact. Um, I like to use the five E's as a way to really clarify what each phase of that experience is like. Um, and that's one of my go-to methods. It is the easier one that I can quickly apply since again, you're looking at end-to-end -end experiences. Is there a, a IA or, or user experience challenge that you are working on right now that you can share with us? Um, not in detail. There is, um, I'm currently working with um, partnering as an independent designer with a R&D lab locally um, and looking at, and the capacity, it's new business development for, um, lack of a better word, and design research, looking for how you make the business case for some new mitigation strategy that's, I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, CEM, um, critical event management. 
And of course, with the world on fire as it is, <laughs> it's becoming a new focal point. How do you anticipate and create um, strategies to deal with what's happening now or what is anticipated to come? Um, so that's where I am right now. And a lot of times the default is, well, there's a, for lack of a better word, there's an app for that. And it's taking a wider view on, well, if there's no electricity, what do you do? You know, when your phone runs out of power, what do you do? So that's, again, one of the things that I like, but it's aligned with what I've always done. I cut my teeth in design in creating things that are used tactile in the real world. Um, the digital is just one aspect of that. And I think a lot of times with the conversations we're having a lot, we are designing things for the world as we think it is rather than, in all honesty, how it is. And we don't take into account um, scenarios. I mean, so, it really, sorry, go ahead. No, that's okay, go ahead. I, I mean, I was just gonna reflect back on the MacGyver uh, design approach, right? I mean, I, I feel like that ability uh, to improvise mm -hmm. is so important when yeah. we're dealing with challenges that are uh, novel, right? That maybe even if we've imagined them, we've never felt them uh, right. the way that we're I, feeling them today. Right. And I, I feel that, and this could be my bias, I will speak to it, that there is a level of comfort that I have with pre-2000 designers. Um, there was a, for lack of a better word, can-do attitude. And we didn't have social media to bounce things off. We didn't have, you know, this commoditized package approach to design. We just got to work. And we learned as we found the solutions. And somewhere along the line that got lost. And um, it's, the, the, with the world slowing down as it has, I know I've kind of found it again. And finding comfort in that innate confidence in can do, which I think is critical to design when you are fixing something. Um, and I, I do like that approach. So that's where I came up with the whole MacGyver. Which yeah, I love is, it. That's a generational thing too. Yeah, no, I, <laughs> I am there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel like I feel like I might need to include a link to a Wikipedia article on MacGyver. Yes, absolutely. For, for our, our younger viewers. Well, absolutely. Yeah. Um, when I now I have been mentoring a lot of young designers and what I find I get so much back working with younger designers because you get you remember what it was like facing everything fresh. And what I hope my mentoring approach does is give young designers the um, permission to go and find out about the world, ask the hard questions, and be comfortable 
with the awkwardness of learning about how the quote-unquote sausage is made. So they then really start to design to comfort affliction. Right now, design has kind of gone in this weird space of comforting the comfortable. And I think something got lost along the way. It doesn't mean that design is always intense or serious, but I feel taking the easy path out has kind of hurt us as a prof as professionals. Um, and I personally just call myself a designer. I don't qualify the type of design because I don't know what solutions I will be asked to work on. Currently with this um, R&D um, firm or small firm, um, a lot of it is unknown. I've never faced half of this stuff or, you know, come, you know, being asked some of these questions, but it spurs my curiosity to find out what is actually happening right now in that space and kind of extrapolating, okay, here is a possible approach. So um, I want to come to the the lens just to, you were, you were talking at a very cool, I appreciated all of those thoughts. I do some mentoring as well. And I, I know that, I know that they think they are getting all the value out of it, but I try and help them understand how much value I get out of it oh my gosh. Uh, as well. Yeah, I think as um, mature designers, to really, it's a good way to, um, it's a good defense against becoming jaded, working with younger designers yeah. and mentoring. It really is. Um, Cause there's a lot out there that you can become really jaded with, but to remember what it was like and that the possibility and the can-do attitude, I, I think it's really a critical um, maturation point as a designer to really help young designers make sense of all of this. Because I, you know, in looking at your background, you yourself, you're coming from that space. Um, and so you understand how the world was then. Um, you know, when I, I use an example, like I was asked by the firm that I was working with, like, yeah, Maxine, could you help us um, figure out a way in which we can guard against Y2K? I was in my early 20s. I had no idea what. And <laughs> it's just, so, you know, I went to the old Netscape and the whole bit. It, it was a whole thing. But here I was, I was given a team. I was, you know, given the mandate, the budget. That would never happen now, right? Oh my goodness. What, what happened in that shift? So it's, it's really helping um, young designers seeing the possibilities, having a can-do attitude, and stepping into leadership spaces without permission to do so. Yeah. I love that. Um, uh, we'll come back to mentoring young designers, because uh, I want to start, uh, I want to ask you about the lens uh, that we picked uh, for you. Um, why don't you tell us what lens it was and maybe uh, describe it in your own words, if that's okay with you. The lens that I had um, an interest in, if I am not mistaken, you had 
it is under it is under the broad category of how to manage in particular precedents. Um, and is it okay for other people to make the same decisions that you made for a solution or in coming up with your solutions? Um, in answer, I think it's fine if someone looked at your approach as part of doing like a analysis or to get a gauge of what others have done. But I would hope that it would just serve as an inspiration to iterate on um, that approach um, based on what unique experiences they bring to um, whatever it is. And also, again, each project is going to have its nuance. Right. Right. And so I would say, okay, if it's being iterated on not cookie cutter funnel, which speaks to what I said earlier. One of the issues I'm having with design right now is this pedantic, almost commoditized approach like a machine. Uh, where, this, where this lens came from was I was working on, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I was working on an intranet um, and uh, we got to a point where we were saying things like, you know, looking at a piece of content and going, oh, let's just stick it in here. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't really fit in that category, but we don't know where else to put it. And I was really concerned that by putting a piece of content in a specific category, we were telling everybody else in the organization, it was okay to put this kind of content in that drawer, even though it didn't necessarily fit there. Um, like um, uh, like uh, sometimes uh, you might think of um, benefits belong in uh, the HR category on an intranet, but we're just gonna put health insurance here on the quick links section. Right. And now we've set this precedent. Was it that, a, oh, I'm sorry. Was it a parking lot thought or like as a, um, Semi-permanent repository. Semi-permanent, like we'll put it in here and now we've set this precedent that it's okay to mess with the structure right. in this way. And I, and I, I, okay, so now I see why you would, you know, want to discuss that because anyone that's been part of a organization-wide web redesign project have gone through that exact same problem. Um, years ago, working at an education nonprofit, we're going through, I think it was one of the, I think it was the second web redesign project that I've ever gone through. And I was the project manager. And you're asking different departments to send in their content for you to evaluate, sort, whatever. And you are correct, there's always, <laughs> be miscellaneous, like where does this fit? And then there is a meeting to say, to discuss the pros and cons on the value of that content. And if people cannot come to a consensus, it's like, well, let's just all agree to put it here for now. Um, and that's why I mentioned, look at what other people have done, but don't do it exactly the same way. 
because um, for the organization I was working with for a time, where we put it, it wouldn't have created that much of a confusion for the user if they came across it. Because that was the other thing. The reason why I asked if it's parking lots, parking lots you generally don't have as external facing. But sometimes these question mark content, it's, um, they, it's, it's considered external facing. So I, I totally commiserate with that experience. And again, I think people can look at or evaluate what you've done before, ask you questions about why, but do not cookie cutter it, right. if you will. Just scale, um, adjust, if you will, for your respective um, project. Right. One of, one of the uh, things that we were talking about before we started recording is, again, that you sort of uh, have, um, uh, your career has gone in maybe uh, more of a service design direction and other other areas of design that are not necessarily web pages uh, per, per se. Um, and, and one of the reasons why I find that so intriguing is um, I one of the ways that I look at design, one of the ways that I see design is not necessarily as designing pixels or things that go on a screen, but designing a set of rules on how information is meant to behave, right? We design when certain content gets pushed to the front. We design how content is meant to be displayed uh, in depending on the context, right? Where we make rules about what's important and what's not important. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, how that notion of <clears throat> designing rules impacts your work today. Is that something that, that you are experiencing in the work that you're doing today? Yeah, it's, there is a saying, and I, I don't want to wrongly attribute it, but design changes behavior, right? So I'm not sure if it's rules, if I would call it, but it's definitely influencing a, a behavioral outcome, right? Um, you are, I'm using, I'm trying to anthropologically pick the right words so it doesn't seem so draconian and puppet masterish. Right. But for lack of a better word, it's, that's kind of like it. As you right. said, you on the back end are choosing what is elevated, what is pushed to the fore, influencing through word choice, content sort, what people look at and how they respond in kind. Um, I go back to what is the job we have deduced I couldn't figure out a better word, sorry. What the job is that the person on the front end is trying to get done. That's, you, that's actually the evaluation criteria. Um, and that's why I mentioned prior the whole five E's, depending on what phase your content falls into, um, let's say it's the engagement phase, um, what kind of content 
serves to engage people. Um, looking at um, both quantitatively and you know qualifying it, what content tend to be engaging? And uh, just speaking of the engagement phase, and that's literally how I use to qualify what kind of outcomes are anticipated with, you know, let's say a service. Uh, I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah. So let's come back to uh, mentoring. Uh, I've been asking folks, um, what advice do they have for designers uh, today? And you've already talked a lot about some of these uh, suggestions uh, on, you know, ensuring that people feel confident in asking difficult questions, uh, in maybe uh, employing or trying new methodologies. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you can maybe dig into those a little, a little bit and just when someone is not feeling confident, when someone is is feeling uh, uh, worried uh, about overstepping their bounds uh, or they're worried about asking the wrong kind of question, is there something that you say to folks to help them, um, uh, to help build up their confidence, to, to feel more um, empowered to ask those questions? It's interesting you ask that question because even after 25 years of experience, <laughs> I still have those moments where I question my own self, right? Um, and question, am I making the right decision? Am I leading something um, by saying certain words, et cetera? The thing that I encourage our younger designers to do is be curious about the world they're in and ask an extraordinary lot of questions. Ask questions like a three-year-old ask questions like a three-year-old and I know I had a boss, he, <laughs> he would be um, annoyed and simultaneously intrigued when I asked certain questions. <laughs> and he was one of my favorite people to this day. Um, and uh, so I, I encourage uh, young designers, so ask why questions and ask how and ask who does this serve, um, but don't ask it in a way that seems judgmental. Ask it in a very open-ended way um, so that it can kind of help you figure out next steps. Um, the confidence part, it's fed by curiosity. Be confident that no one knows everything. I don't care if they're experts or not. We have a lot of people that say I'm an expert, but one of the issues with the word expert, it could be you have a fixed point of view mm. and the world is moving way fast. And the minute you think you have a handle on a certain way of being or thinking, it's gone. Right. Stay curious and understand that learning is a lifelong process um, and just embrace it and remain curious. I am still taking courses, um, online courses. I'm still learning. I still can have my jaw drop open like I am new at this again, like what? Yeah, have retain that sense of wonder because you'd be amazed how that feeds your repository 
for having generalized knowledge that you can then scale to bring to the fore when working on a solution. I think we will leave it there, Maxine. That was fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. You are welcome. And hopefully this will prove um, helpful to whoever listens to it.